interrupt your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. I'm here today with Daniel Mitchell. Dan is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, where he specializes in tax reform and supply-side tax policy. Prior to joining Cato, he was a senior fellow with the Heritage Foundation and an economist for Senator Bob Packwood in the Senate Finance Committee. Now, when we're talking about issues of debt and taxes and government spending, we often get bombarded with empty, meaningless numbers and confusing jargon. So I wanted to have Dan on to help us get a handle on what these numbers actually mean for us, how they affect our lives. So Dan, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. I'm glad to be with you. So I want to start by giving listeners a sense of just how much the U.S. government spends each year. Uh, the federal government by itself spends uh, about $3.7 trillion, $3.8 trillion a year. That's the estimate for uh, 2014. Uh, that's about 22% of GDP, if I recall the numbers correctly. In other words, more than one out of every $5 produced by the American economy is diverted uh, and consumed by federal government spending. Can you put that in a little historic context? How does that compare to, say, 30 years ago or 100 years ago? Well, compared to 100 years ago, it's, uh, there's been an enormous explosion in the size of government for much of our nation's history. You know, with the exception of wartime, uh, the federal government was relatively small, sort of what our founding fathers envisioned, spending perhaps only about 3% of GDP. Uh, but then, beginning in the 1930s, government began to get bigger, and then, of course, it got enormous during World War II, but what happened after World War II was the most important thing, because unlike with previous wars, government did not uh, return to its uh, normal, traditional, small size, in part because of the welfare state programs created in the 1930s. But after World War II, uh, government went back down to maybe about... Uh, 15% of GDP, and ever since then, it's gone up and down a bit, but it's gradually increased to uh, the low 20s as a share of the economy. Well, can you just explain for one second, for those who don't know what it means to say is uh, what GDP is? A GDP, gross domestic product, is the economy's economic output. It's so, how much we produce each year. So if we were to compare it to like an individual, if I earn hundred thousand dollars to say that I'm spending uh, you know twenty percent of GDP on government means I'm spending twenty percent of my income on what services I'm getting for the government is that right correct uh, it's not a perfect analogy because government of course doesn't finance all its spending with taxes it also borrows a lot of money uh, so maybe if you really want to draw the analogy out uh, if you're an individual with $100,000 of income, uh, and we're going to make an analogy with the government, maybe the government uh, uh, taxes away $18,000, and then you as an individual, you save some money, but the government then borrows $4,000 of the amount you save. Okay, so yeah, I'm going to come back to the issue of how the government gets its revenues. But one more question about just its 
uh, current budget, where does that money go? W what are we actually funding when we're spending that much on the government? Uh, a lot of different things. So the biggest single department, I assume, is still the Defense Department, uh, which would be somewhere around, I think, 4.5% of GDP. Uh, but then Social Security and Medicare are very close to that. Uh, following that, you'd have Medicaid, uh, net interest, and then you just would go down the list of all the different government departments and programs. Uh, there's a lot of, unfortunately, there's a lot of things uh, uh, that Washington is now involved with, uh, and all these different departments and agencies and entitlements, it, it all adds up to a pretty significant amount. And by the way, the bad news, the bad news is that whatever these numbers are now, they're going to be far, far worse uh, in the future because of the aging of the population and the uh, the entitlements that are associated with the elderly, such as Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Yeah, we'll definitely come back to that. So you mentioned that there's really two basic ways in which the government's paying for all of this. And one is taxes, which is pretty straightforward, right? In one way or another, they're taking money from us and using it to fund these programs, but you also mentioned uh, a second way in which it's funding these borrowing. So can you explain a little bit about how that works and then what the breakdown is between how much is paid in taxes and how much is paid through borrowing? Taxes are, simply stated, money the government takes from you basically at the point of a gun. Uh, you earn money, uh, they're going to take income tax from you, they're going to take payroll tax from you, they're going to take money from corporations, they're going to take money in the form of death tax and capital gains tax. We have all these different taxes, but usually politicians spend even more than they tax. Uh, and when they spend more than they tax, how do they, how do they pay for the extra spending? Well, they just borrow money from, from private capital markets or private credit markets. Just, you know, there, there are there are individuals out there, there are companies out there, uh, there are pension funds, insurance companies, investors, uh, sovereign wealth funds uh, from places like China and Dubai. Uh, there are all these people out there who are looking for places to invest their money, and they look at the U.S. federal government and they figure, well, it's not going to be, um, we're not going to get a a good return. We're not going to get a lot of interest if we buy U.S. government debt, but but the perception is that's a safe way to invest your money. And so all the money that the government borrows, unlike with taxes, taxes are not voluntary. There's coercion. There's there's the threat of jail. Uh, there, there's the force of government uh, to, uh, to get taxes. Borrowing is voluntary uh, in that nobody has to buy a U.S. government bond. You know, that's how the government you know, borrows the money. It sells bonds or notes or T-bills, different instruments, but they're all basically the same thing, just different. Um, you know, you're borrowing for short periods or long periods of time. That's, that's the difference there. Uh, but the federal government, uh, when there's a huge deficit, like we had, say, right after the financial crisis, sometimes the federal government's going out and borrowing more than a trillion dollars a year. On the other hand, if you go back uh, 15 years ago, we had budget surpluses, which meant that the government was actually spending less than it collected in taxes. And then, of course, what happens is the government uh, retires some of the existing debt. And to draw the analogy uh, of the uh, household with $100,000 of income and uh, uh, what happens when the government uh, pays down its debt, it's sort of like they're 
putting money back into our our bank accounts and do uh, investment funds and things like that. And and how did they get the money to do that? Well, if, if they have a surplus, that's when they pay down debt. They have a surplus, they get the money because they're taxing even more than they're spending. Right. So I guess the the point I want to draw out for people is that ultimately, whether they're paying today or they're paying tomorrow, uh, it it's ultimately going to come out of taxes. Is that right? Yes. Uh, and I would even take it one step farther. The true tax burden is how much government is spending. Why? Because as you say, whether you're paying the tax today or whether you're paying the tax tomorrow uh, to, because of the interest on the debt and you know, it, it's all it's all a, a a burden that the government is imposing on the economy, and and to to explore that even further, every dollar the government spends in 2014 is going to be taken out of the productive sector of the economy. Most of it will be taken out in the form of taxes, but even the dollars that are taken out in the form of borrowing, that's still money being diverted from the productive sector of the economy. Uh, so government spending itself is the true tax. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. But uh, let me raise then a question. Is there any benefit to it in the short term, at least, being in the form of debt rather than taxes? There's a political benefit that there's an advantage for the uh, for the politicians in that most of us don't like paying taxes. We, we sort of have an idea that there's a lot of waste and fraud and uh, and just money being squandered in Washington. And so when we work hard and we get up, or punching a clock, you know, earning money, you know, that's not fun. We'd all rather be goofing up and uh, and enjoying our lives. Uh, so if we're going to go out there and work and earn money, you know, we want to keep the money we earn. And and so when politicians say, okay, we're going to tax you, we're already taxing you a lot, now we're going to tax you even more, that tends to get people irritated. So politicians, uh, you know, in many ways, if they can borrow the money, because as I said before, that's a, a way of voluntarily getting money as opposed to the coercion of taxes, the perception is that, that they won't get voters as angry if they borrow the money. But of course, ultimately, you do have to pay interest on the debt. and you know, So all you're really doing with government debt is you're, you're postponing the, uh, the tax. And of course, you're not postponing the economic damage because you're still diverting resources from the productive sector of the economy. Well, that leads me to the kind of main issue that I want to look at, which is a lot of people don't understand that government spending doesn't just affect how much of their paycheck they get to keep. It affects how much money we all make in the first place, how fast the economy grows, how much opportunity exists, how easy it is to get a job and so on. Is that right? It has a lot of other effects than just what a given tax rate is. That's a very good point, because we were just talking earlier about, you know, the true tax is how much government spends. Well, I'm not talking about tax in the sense of how much the government is taking out of my paycheck or your paycheck. I'm talking about tax in the economic sense, the burden imposed on the economy. Uh, because even if money just floated down from heaven into the hands of politicians, the mere fact that they're spending the money means that resources in our economy are going to be diverted to the federal government. Uh, and when the federal government is controlling how capital and labor are being used in our economy, they're not going to do it as efficiently as the private sector. 
and I, I don't want to sound like a boring economist, but you know, every economic theory, even Marxist, even socialists, would agree that there's basically two factors of production, labor and capital. Labor, that's you and me and everyone else, our, 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 our work. And capital is machinery, equipment, technology, tools, things like that. And you get more economic output when you mix capital and labor together efficiently. Well, governments don't do that. And so there's a reason why, say, big government economies, like, well, I don't know, what Cuba is probably 90% government. Well, Cuba is an economic basket case. It's very, very poor. But then if you take sort of traditional European social welfare states, well, maybe government there is only, and I put only in quotation marks, you know, maybe it's only 55% of GDP, but they're economically stagnant too, not nearly as bad off as Cuba, of course, but still in pretty weak shape. And then you have economies like, say, the U.S., Switzerland, Australia, where government is is big, but it's maybe only, when you count federal, state, and local, it's maybe 35% of GDP. And then you have the small government economies like Hong Kong and Singapore, where it's only 20% of GDP. And there's a pretty clear relationship. Obviously, there are lots of factors, so I don't want to pretend that fiscal policy is all that matters. Monetary policy, labor policy, trade policy, regulation, all these things matter as well. But in terms of fiscal policy, the bigger a government, uh, the bigger the government is in a in a country, the worse its economic performance is going to be. So I wonder if we could take like an example. The government decides, all right, we're going to increase spending to pay for uh, some new project. What what happens between that and the real and the rest of the economy? What what would be a kind of example that? Uh, demonstrates what you're talking about. Well, it, it's it's uh, it's difficult to explain because this gets into what the uh, the great French economist Frederick Bastiat. Of course, he was back in the 1840s and 1850s. That's how long it's been since there was a great French economist. Uh, <laughs> but Frederick Bastiat talked about the difference between the seen and the unseen. He said. Uh, you know, what really defined a good economist was not looking just at the obvious first-order effects of something, but you know, what are sort of the behind-the-scenes, second-order effects uh, of, of an action. So when government spends money, and you, you see this, politicians do this all the time, they say the government spends money to build, a, to build a new bridge. They say, oh, look at this new bridge. We hired uh, 100 workers on this new bridge, and those 100 workers then spent money in their communities, and, and look at all the wealth that was created. Well, the problem is you have to ask the question, where did the government get the money to build the bridge in the first place? And let's say the bridge cost $200 million. Uh, okay, yeah, that $200 million, it hired 100 workers, it created this bridge, but what if that $200 million was left in the private sector in the first place? Uh, maybe it would have employed 300 people instead, and maybe it would have created something that was a lot more valuable than the bridge. So what you really have to do with government spending is you have to do a cost-benefit analysis. You know, sort of sounds boring, and I guess it is actually boring, but, but you know, this brings us back to the example, uh, example that I was giving with countries. Obviously, in Cuba, government is far, far, far too big. In France, it's way too big as well. But there's also a lot of evidence that it's too big in the United States and Australia and countries where government isn't quite as big. And so, so if you look throughout economic history uh, and look at where you tend to get the most economic growth, you know, again, trying to just isolate the impact of fiscal policy, there's a pretty good argument that government spending 
you know, and, and this assumes, of course, government is the only way of, of doing certain things, but if government should really be limited to just what are called core public goods, rule of law, property rights, uh, maintenance of public order, pr- protection against invasion, uh, and, and, and you don't need more than, say, 5 to 10% of GDP to, uh, to fulfill those roles. So, so government spending does divert resources from the private sector. The private sector tends to use those resources better. And so we have to ask ourselves a question. Every time someone wants to spend money through the government on something, is this going to hurt our economy? Or is it going to help our economy? And that requires a cost-benefit analysis of how well money will be used. So somebody might object, though, and say, well, look, we're far richer today when government spending, you know, uh, over 20, between 20 and 30, maybe 40 percent of GDP than we were back when it was spending 3 percent of GDP. So doesn't, shouldn't that cause you to have pause? Some people make the very simplistic mistake of looking and saying, ah, America, you know, federal, state, and local governments combined, we spend uh, you know, 35, 40 percent, you know, depending on the year, and we're richer than we were then 100 years ago when federal, state, and local spending combined was 10 percent of GDP. Uh, my simple response to that is we got rich as a country because government was small. Uh, when government was small, and there was less intervention, less involvement, less interference, we would grow 3 to 4 to 5% a year, and that enabled us to become rich. As we became rich, politicians figured out ways of extracting more money from the productive sector of the economy. They figured out ways of trying to buy votes, creating new programs. Government got bigger and bigger, and as a result, we're now growing slower. And as a matter of fact, Every time I give speeches in other countries, especially if I'm in a poor country, like in a developing country or a transition country in Eastern Europe or someplace, they often ask me, well, we want to be rich, we want, and Germany's a rich country, shouldn't we just adopt German fiscal policy or German economic policy more broadly? And I say to them, yes, you should ad- adopt German policy, but you should adopt German policy from when Germany became rich. Germany became a rich country when government was a lot smaller. So if you want a welfare state, and I think it's a mistake to have a welfare state, you should only adopt a welfare state after you become a rich country. Now, once you become rich, and if you only want to grow maybe 1% to 2% a year after that, adopt a welfare state. But if you're a poor country and you adopt a welfare state and you only grow 1% to 2% a year, you'll never become rich. So it's a question of which comes first, the cart or the horse. Yes, a rich country can afford a welfare state. You'll grow slower. But a poor country can't because they'll never become rich. Well, let's talk about that for a second because one of the things we hear today is that, you know, we've had – growth over the last few decades, but that it hasn't, it's gone all to the 1% and that the middle class and certainly the poor haven't enjoyed any of it. And that's exactly why we need a welfare state to make sure that those gains are more evenly spread. How would you respond to that? Governments are very good at redistribution, but you have to realize that you can't redistribute what, unless you first produce. Uh, And you can see in countries like Cuba, where the entire government, the entire society uh, is is designed around redistribution, you get very little production, and the best thing you can say is everyone's equally poor. 
Now, in reality, there's always a Communist Party elite that's relatively rich, but the broad swath of society is very, very poor. But they're equally poor. So I suppose if you're a uh, some sort of statist with a very twisted morality, you could say, ah, yes, it's better to be in Cuba because everybody's equally poor. You don't want to be in the United States where everyone's richer, but some are richer than others. Well, that's a, that's a moral and philosophical question. I'm an economist, but I have a hard time thinking how anybody, would, unless their morality is really twisted, why anybody would prefer equal misery over unequal prosperity. Uh, and that's fundamentally what the issue boils down to, just different degrees. Obviously, you know, there's a difference between Cuba, total redistribution, France, a lot of redistribution, the U.S., some redistribution, and Hong Kong, very little redistribution. And, and just like I was making the analogy before, that the smaller the government is, the faster the growth you get, on average, over the long run. Well, much of government is about redistribution. So you could use re redistribution as an analogy for why bigger governments tend to be associated with slower-growing economies. What about the claim that uh, you'll often hear that, at least right now, government spending is something we shouldn't want to cut because it's precisely the lack of spending in the private sector that's really threatening the economy and keeping us from having a real recovery? That's the uh, traditional Keynesian economics argument, uh, and this is very much um, uh, in line with what I was talking about before about Bastiat and the seen and the unseen and the example we had of the bridge. Uh, Keynesian economics is based on the notion that government's going to spend uh, some money. Uh, that money is then going to, say, for building a bridge, is going to be in a community, uh, and it somehow it's going to stimulate the economy. We're building this bridge, and look at the, the workers who got paid because of building the bridge, and they're spending money at the grocery store, and they're paying money on their rent, and, and that money's then being used in the community. But the problem with Keynesian economics is, no, as Bastiat said, what, what about the unseen? Where does the government get the money? What would the private sector have done with that money if the government wasn't using it first? And so Keynesian economics is basically the economic equivalent of a perpetual motion machine. You're going to have the government spend a lot of money. You're not going to ask where did the money come from. You're not going to ask uh, how, what, how that money would have been used if it was uh, not being consumed by government. And you're just going to sort of magically hope that good things are going to happen, then you're only going to look at the direct effects. You're going to ignore the second-order effects and third-order effects. In reality, every dollar the government spends, and Keynesian theory is based on the notion that you should deliberately have a deficit because you're spending so much money that you have to go out and borrow some, uh, and then you spend it, and that's going to somehow be good for the economy. But that's like taking money out of your right pocket and putting it in your left pocket and deciding that you're rich or richer. In reality, government can't spend a dollar without taking it from someone, and that's why uh, Bush's so-called Keynesian stimulus in 2008 didn't work. Obama's so-called stimulus in 2009 didn't work. I mean, the Keynesian economics didn't work for Hoover and Roosevelt in the 30s. It didn't work for Japan in the 90s. It just doesn't work. But politicians love Keynesian economics because it tells them their vice is a virtue. They love to spend money. They don't like taxing as much because voters get more upset. Uh, so if they can borrow money and spend it, they can buy a lot more votes. They can give a lot more money to special interest groups. Uh, but they're, they're presumably less likely to have outraged voters. And they can say, hey, there are some economists who actually say this is a good idea. 
So looking into the future, you know, you mentioned that uh, whatever government's spending now, it's going to be spending a heck of a lot more thanks mainly to Social Security and Medicare and the aging of the population. And I wonder if you can just say a little bit about how those programs are going to uh, grow based on what's currently happening and how that could affect young Americans. Well, young Americans are, are facing a relatively grim future because we are making the mistakes that we've seen in countries like Greece, Spain, Italy, where they've already hit financial crisis, uh, where already uh, uh, private investors don't trust the government anymore, so they won't lend the government money uh, unless they get a very, very uh, high interest rate to compensate for the risk that, well, maybe the government's just not going to pay us back. Uh, that's what the European fiscal crisis is all about, just investors deciding we don't want to buy the bonds from this country, this country's government, because we don't trust them. Uh, so the question is then, uh, given our demographics, it's a fact that our population is aging. Nobody really argues with that. You can't argue with it. Uh, it's, it's baked into the cake already based on uh, different age cohorts of our population. And given the fact that we have these very expensive entitlement programs, uh, it's a simple matter to, well, not totally simple, because you have all sorts of, uh, you have to make assumptions about longevity and things like that, but it's a relatively straightforward exercise to then predict this is what government is going to have to spend in the future if it wants to fulfill all these commitments that politicians have made. And if you look at those long-run forecasts, they're, they're very sobering, if not horrifying, because they basically show the United States becoming like Greece, the burden of government spending, and again, we have federal spending, state spending, local spending, federal spending as, as uh, most of what government spends in the United States, and federal spending right now is about 22% of GDP, it's expected to perhaps climb to over 40% of GDP. And then when you add in uh, state and local government spending, and you do some projections about where that might be, say, you know, 15, 25, 35 years in the future, uh, yes, it becomes very apparent that we might have a Greek-style economy then. And, and that's going to be very bad in terms of economic growth. It's going to be very bad in terms of job creation, living standards, economic opportunity. Uh, so it's something we should definitely worry about. Yeah, I think it's hard to make real to people the abstract idea that economic growth could be lower. But, I mean, one way to think about it is if we had had this problem 100 years ago, we wouldn't be where we are today. We'd be, what, maybe where we were in 1930? Well, the analogy I use, uh, because you're right, economic growth is critical, but it's a concept that's difficult for some people to grasp. I mean, you know, what's the difference between 2% growth and 3% growth? Um, you know, I don't know. If we're, if we're only planning on living one year, it's probably not even noticeable. But let's, take, uh, let's go back to, say, 1870. If America, instead of having the actual growth we did have, if our economy grew just one percentage point less each year, our living standards today would be lower than Mexico's. Yeah, well, now, that, that, that about that's sums pretty it up. Shocking. Uh, and, and even a, a more modest example, let's say, um, let's say over the next 25 years, we grew just two-tenths of one percent slower per year compared to our, you know, historically the U.S. has grown three percent a year. 
you know, sometimes faster, sometimes slower, but it's been remarkable, you know, that we've had this relatively long period with average growth of 3%. Well, let's say we grew two-tenths of 1% slower per year for the next 25 years. For the average household, that means more than $4,000 less income. So economic growth is critical. I mean, Albert Einstein said the most powerful force in the world is compound interest. And what's compound interest? It's growth upon growth. And so, yes, it might not mean much to have 3% growth instead of 2% growth for one year, uh, but if you sustain faster growth over time, it makes a huge difference. This is why this is why places like Hong Kong and Singapore, which used to be very poor, are now richer than, not only richer than France and Greece and some of the European welfare states, they've now become richer than the United States because they've been growing on average 5 to 6% a year because the burden of government is very small, uh, whereas other countries, like the U.S., we've been growing 3% a year, but places like France and Italy grow 1% to 2% a year, and, and even less more recently. Dan, where can people find out more about your work? Well, I'm at the Cato Institute, which is cato.org, uh, but every day I blog at uh, my site, International Liberty. It's danieljmitchell.wordpress.com, but the simple way of finding it is just going to some search engine, typing in Dan Mitchell blog, and it'll, it'll be the first thing to come up. And every day I pick out something to write about, generally fiscal policy, but more broadly about economic freedom, individual liberty, and small government. Yeah, and I should add for uh, people who want a little bit of humor and what is often a grim topic, you very often uh, give us a little laugh break occasionally with political cartoons and uh, other things to brighten what are otherwise sometimes very heavy discussions. There's lots of bad news coming out of Washington, so we're probably going to cry, so we might as well laugh also. All right. Thanks again, Dan. Thank you. So what should we take away from this discussion? We've heard that the major driver of government spending has been the growth of the welfare state. Well, the welfare state has grown in large part because anyone who opposes it is denounced as an uncompassionate enemy of the poor and the middle class. Well, the truth is that it's the supporters of the welfare state who are keeping people poor. As Dan explained, government spending undermines prosperity. And even if you only slow growth by 1%, Over time, that makes an incredible difference in our standard of living. The fact is, if you advocate the welfare state, you advocate making people poorer. Now, the welfare states will say, look, Watkins, here's someone struggling to put a roof over her head, and I want to give her money to help her pay her rent. How can you say I'm making people poorer? The lesson we should take from today's discussion is that you have to look at the big picture. Now, in the short term, a welfare handout might increase a person's standard of living, although that doesn't make wealth redistribution moral. But had we never started redistributing wealth in the first place, far, far fewer people would be struggling to pay the rent. If you care about reducing poverty, you should aim to maximize prosperity. And the source of prosperity is not the welfare state. It's the free market. When the government protects our rights, including our right to property, It gives us the greatest possible freedom and incentive to produce, save, invest, and innovate. So with that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, 
and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.